0: What's up, gang? Thanks for listening to the Undiplomatic Podcast, the show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene. I'm your host, Van Jackson, and today we've got Alex Audie Hello. Gabby Magnuson, What's up? and Jake Dello. Good morning. So a couple quick hits before we get started. First is a shout out to me and also Hunter Marsden. So <laughs> 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 it's weird to okay. shout out yourself, but such as... Uh, so... Uh, We, Hunter and I wrote a, uh, Hunter's a PhD candidate at Australia National University. We had been talking for a while. He's also a friend of the pod. And we had sort of started working on a research project about um, US credibility in Asia, but like, uh, I'm such a slacker and working on other stuff and distracted and, you know, he's writing his dissertation It's a big project. So we had sort of just batted ideas back and forth uh, about Asian security kind of continuously. And then uh, maybe a month ago or a couple weeks ago, we saw uh, Foreign Policy published this piece by James Crabtree, uh, who it turns out is like actually a very nice guy. He interacted with us quite a bit um, in the last few days. But also like other pieces published elsewhere saying similar things that Biden has a credibility problem in Asia, that Asian political elites are growing accustomed to Trump's ways. Yeah, he's like a bull in a China shop, but we're we're dealing with it. The important thing is that he's tough on China, whatever the fuck that means. So this is not those sniping points that hawks are making in op-eds was not reflecting the region as we understood it right hunter is in australia i'm in new zealand we both focus on Mm -hmm. asian security we're both on the think tank circuit talking to policy elites right we read all the literature like we're abreast of what's happening in the capitals and how people perceive things so we knew that this was not true everyone in asia thinks trump's a fucking disaster And so, like, absolutely. Why is that even why is there even an alternative narrative? You know, like there's a couple people in Australia who are also uber hawks. Big surprise. India is pretty hawkish on China, but that's about it. And then Taiwan loves that they're getting love from the U.S., but it's because they're getting everything they want. Like the spigot on arms sales opened up for once. And so they love it. Right. But like that doesn't mean that's good for Taiwan. It doesn't mean that's good for the region. And so we, we went through a shitload of opinion polling that proves American standing has dropped precipitously since Trump came to office. This, this confirms our anecdotes, but also like my whole fucking last book, about the risks of nuclear war that Trump created through his decisions, right? Maximum pressure backfiring and with china it's like we've increased risks of conflict we're like nudging them toward a first use nuclear posture and it's like why would we do that you know manipulating policy across the taiwan strait in ways that removes incentives for china to restrain itself which is like not sensible which we talked about before so like all this stuff right and then like economic interdependence the the asian peace the absence of war since 1979 Um, I'm working, one of my books right now is about this. The the stitching together of the region economically is underwriting a generation of peace, basically. There are other factors involved, but that is like kind of at the center. And whatever you think about the capitalist peace, there's no question that states, especially developing nations in like Southeast Asia, they got to focus on economic development as opposed to stoking ethnic nationalism and territorial disputes uh, as a source of legitimacy in taking that away or opposing that or introducing mercantilism into the region undoes all that, right? Walking away from Trans Pacific Partnership undoes all that. If you're going to break down the, I don't like the term, but capitalist peace, the economic <laughs> rationale for, I, yeah, I hate that term. Yeah, that's my... The term know exactly makes, what yeah about. yeah and this is something the left hasn't grappled with frankly and clearly neither has fucking trump you can just dist- mm. you can deconstruct that or oppose that right um there's a basis for thinking that like economic interdependence is not like that it's corrupt it's in, unequal um yeah. and so it, it's an it causes problems too but you have to like you have to substitute something for preserving the peace like it, to the extent that it has helped maintain stability, you need like a compensatory move or a set of policies or something. And Trump offers none of that. So all he's done is take a sledgehammer to the economic order, plus increasing risks of war, plus reducing America's standing. So like basically I'm, I'm giving you like my Im, the pathos version of our, our piece yeah. that we wrote for foreign policy. But it's just fucking ridiculous. Trump has been bad for Asia and Asia is looking forward to anybody other than Trump, including Biden. Although it's not all like, you know, cherries and and whipped cream or whatever. It's, you know, like, there are still concerns about Biden, I think, but not compared to Trump.
1: Well, that's sort of what I was wondering. Like we know that if Biden gets elected, there's going to be damage control situation. We know that's what to expect, but is it, far too optimistic or maybe just not realistic for us to expect maybe a u-turn on some of the policy maybe a direct change as opposed to just damage control
0: yeah it's hard to know it's very clear that biden just wants to get through the election and he's not trying. like there's nothing to be gained in like locking in policy commitments now and so i would expect that you know the first 100 days is going to be assuming he slides in there with no troubles, it will be a hundred days of like figuring out what the best policies ought to be. And I don't think he's going to be feel, feel like his hands are tied or beholden to anything Trump has decided.
2: Have you and Hunter been getting like a lot of shit for it or, because I've mostly only been seeing people like say like, it's good article, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I didn't think to me, this, this argument was so obvious, right? Trump has shit on Asia. Yeah that i didn't think it would even get published it it just seemed too of course like how hard is it to dunk on fucking trump's policies that's anybody (laughs) that's what we do that's what everyone does on twitter all day i was skeptical that it would even see the light of day but then we published it and like a lot of people seem to like it it resonates people on the left are largely don't even read foreign policy even though they should but uh outside of that you know the rose twitter or whatever there's <laughs> among like the establishment people it was like ammunition for them you know because they're geared, yeah they're targeting trump so james crabtree had a like a, a very friendly rebuttal um and he yeah he got in touch with us like behind the scenes and uh it turns out like he's he's a cool dude we <laughs> just don't agree on everything so he thought that the piece was actually really good like he didn't disagree with most of, of the course. piece he just didn't you know if somebody uses you as the frame that they're pushing against in their piece is like like you probably yeah, feel yeah. bad about that you know? <laughs> so but he he thought the argument was basically right like Trump took a dump on Asia cuz
1: even the pro Trump people even they admit that he hasn't been good on foreign policy but he hasn't been as bad as we're saying he is
0: yeah the pivot or the posture that uh, the the pro Trumpish people assume the pose is Trump's strategy is good on paper. And my thing is always like any strategy has to have as part of it plausible actions to implement it. And the problems, the all the problems with Trump's strategies such as they are, we can't even call them strategies, but like Trump's decision making on on foreign policy on Asia in particular, it's all stuff that very predictably was going to fail because it had unreasonable expectations, not plausible yeah. assumptions or assessments about how allies would react about how china would react and so like you knew from the jump that the actions that would be required were not feasible and so the strategy is not good on paper when people say that they're just kind of like laundering trump's yeah like they're they're just, it's just a hawkish it it's a hawkish instinct preference but like that's not a good theory of the case
1: Oh, that's right i agree
0: uh, second quick hit. This is a shout out to Daniel Dudney, who I believe he's a professor at Johns Hopkins University, but he's like a, a very smart, kind of critical theory uh, IR scholar. And he published a book called Dark Skies, and it's about the geopolitics of expanding into space. I haven't read it. But <laughs> I did put it on my like Amazon wish list. It's basically arguing that uh, we're going, it's arguing that we're going to, we humanity, expand into space the same way, basically, that empires expanded into Asia and Africa. And yeah, well, why wouldn't it be? Yeah, I mean, and that, the thing is, like, empire is a way of managing politics over long distances. I think I've said this before, Like, it's an administrative innovation. It's just the problem is it's an innovative uh, yeah. administrative innovation that is fundamentally unjust, right? It's it's anti-democratic. If yeah. you're on the object side of it or the receiving end of it, it's basically uh, totalitarianism, right? And exactly. like you're not Gosh. even human. And Dudney argues that that's what is most likely as we expand into space. I almost want to get him on the show to talk about it. When corporations are your lead for expanding, that's precisely like empire days, right? Age of empires. It's like you have these, like the British East India Company and this kind of thing and the Dutch East India Company. Like you have companies leading the charge, which means that they're looking for resource exploitation, which means they're looking for control. And... Uh, Layered on top of that is the territorialization, because you're looking for resources, the territorialization of space makes it competitive in a geopolitical sense. And uh, because you're having to, by definition, you're managing political systems over the longest distances ever imagined, it's going to have imperial character and when you like add all that up it's not just that space expansion and space exploration is going to look more and more like age of empires it's like even worse than that because of the technologies involved and because of the constraints of living in space and so his argument is basically like space expansion is going to produce totalitarian societies and they're gonna like if you are a person who lives in space you're gonna be like very subject to that we all this whole book is like a big middle finger to Elon Musk. He is a proto-totalitarian masquerading as Iron Man, Tony Stark or something. Yeah, basically. Yeah. And there's a huge fucking danger in in his project basically. And there's a lot of unintended danger in all of this because it's just going to be this ungoverned space where people fight for resource control, strategic control. The thing I love about this is not even like I think this is probably right, unfortunately, but it's just that it pushes back against the conventional wisdom of like the space enthusiasts. <laughs> I think it's like a, people think of space exploration as like this cool thing, and it's high tech, and it's sci-fi, and it's like there's yeah. a dark side, unintended consequences kind of thing. So, shout out to Dudney for this book, which uh, I need to read and possibly get him on the show to talk about.
2: Yeah, it actually looks really interesting. Just even reading like the synopsis of it, even just going through it and being like, he makes a lot of sense. The actual yeah. read's got to be good.
1: Yeah, yeah. Let's do prediction market, where we get van to predict outcomes from today's current events and keep track of them. We're at right, prediction market this week. We're going to start off by going over to Iran. Question one, will we see any pushback from the Trump administration following the release of further evidence that shows Iran building more sites with nuclear capability
0: yeah so there's satellite images of Natanz having construction going on this is not totally surprising it underscores in my mind that like mm-hmm. it's not just that maximum pressure doesn't work it's that it's it's counterproductive it produces negative blowback or feedback and so you see iran when trump walks away from the jcpoa the iran nuclear deal What choice does Iran have, given how they've been boxed in politically, except to go down the nuclear path? There's a like they don't want to elicit preventive bombing on themselves, but short of that, they have every incentive to get to get nuclear weapons. So like, of course, there's gonna be construction and fissile material reprocessing, and like, that's the path, man. Um, So the question was about like trump administration reactions i don't know they're reacting like as much as they possibly can oh was there a timeline on this no
1: Uh, no there wasn't
0: yeah i mean i'm gonna say that i mean the trump administration is over basically um short of like an authoritarian turn so on that basis i'm gonna say that like no there's not any time for the trump administration to do anything more than it's already done against iran
1: question two by a story in the globe and mail Will we see any sanctions laid against China by Canada before January next year? And this is following a story which goes on to explain how U.S. senior government officials are sort of encouraging Canada nicely to hit China with further sanctions or any sanctions at all for for the over the Uyghur genocide.
0: So I'm going to say no for the prediction, but I think that this is the direction things are headed. Right? We have an ongoing genocide in Xinjiang. It's going to Canada's in the liberal camp yeah. Of, yeah. In, of world politics. So obviously at some point it's going to have to manifest um, those values in the face of what is obviously a genocide and one that's not ending, right? It's not like you can be like, no. well, we should have acted like it's continuing and there's nothing foreseeable that's going to stop it. And so I think it's in Canada's. Like I think organically, Canada will come to the decision that it needs to um, impose some kind of sanctions regime. Um, I don't know that the U.S. making the request is doing doing itself any favors, you know, like this is in Can- it's Canada's interest to come to this decision, the Trump administration badgering them, I don't think is going to move the needle.
1: No, because, you know, the first step is at least admitting it's happening and, They, China's not even on that level yet. Yeah, yeah. Well, staying in the Asian sphere, for question three, will we see further proliferation of arms to neighbor states by India before December? And that's following a story which explains how India's starting to give certain arms to Myanmar, including an entire submarine.
0: So this is super weird. Uh, I'm yeah, gonna, I'm gonna really say weird. <laughs> yeah, for the prediction, I'm gonna say no, but actually this this kind of trend is probably gonna keep continuing. Give it so submarines are like a fairly advanced capability, even the old shit ones. Mm, yeah, and they require a lot of training and maintenance and support infrastructure. The idea that you're going to just like transfer a submarine to another country that has very low Infrastructure capacity and has, you know, n- very little naval capability to speak of. It's all ground forces. Yeah. It's really weird. It's like inefficient. I get why it's happening, right? It's like a counter to China. And so India wants to set up a bulwark against China or encircle China, maybe in its most ambitiousness. Um, but a submarine to Myanmar seems weird to me. Also, Myanmar is in the ethnic cleansing business still. So like, exactly. I'm not I'm not loving that either. Like, I don't think, you know, proto-genocidal people need submarines. But it's just me.
1: Well, yeah, I I can't help but agree on that point. Um, in Myanmar, like Hunter, like our friend Hunter Marston, who we pointed out previously in the podcast, he does a lot of work on Myanmar, and it's not going very well. Yeah. Um, the country as it stands now, and I mean, what are they going to do with a submarine because they can't they can't even quite sort out the conflict within their own borders at the moment
0: it seems implausible to me that they're going to maintain some kind of like sophisticated intelligence capability or even not even sophisticated an unsophisticated intelligence capability seems unlikely but also the only threat they're focused on is their own ethnic minorities they're not focused on china really china yeah, the china exactly. threat is why they opened up to the u.s that's how they're dealing with that like external balancing so like i don't this is not i don't know it's not good
2: time for stay off twitter where we curate the best and worst of twitter so that you don't have to
0: so for stay off twitter this week uh, i've got two one is from congressman ruben gallego who uh, is a Democrat. Thank you. And uh, he's also a U.S. military veteran. He served in the Marines. And he was a classmate of Jared Kushner's at Harvard. And he's responding to a Jared Kushner statement on Fox the other day, where he said, many black Americans do not want to be successful.
1: Oh fuck! I hate that piece of shit. He's
0: a fucking <laughs> oh, asshole. They saw that. Ruben, congressman. He says this is how the one percent look at minorities. I was a classmate of Kushner. Let me tell you what I did to get into Harvard, compared to what he did. Yes, a thread. Um, he says that you know it's his freshman year of high school, and he realized that the only way college was going to happen for him was that he had to do well in his exams. He started buying used prep exam books, copying exams from the library. He said that he was lucky enough to have a job that let him practice his tests in between flipping burgers. He used to he used the money from flipping burgers to pay for extracurricular stuff that would look good on his college resume. Um, he said not knowing anyone. That went to Harvard, let alone college. um, He looked up students in the student directory. He's Hispanic. So he looked for Latino sounding names in the student directory at Harvard. And then he left (laughs) messages with those people. And a few of them returned his calls, helped guide him, like how to apply for college. Um, And then junior year, right? He intensified his practice exams. He added more AP exams. He became student council president. He had an after-school job on top of his extracurriculars. And then he uh, applied to Harvard using uh, money orders, using a friend's computer because he didn't have one. He had to figure out how to do like the estimated tax tax stuff for student aid applications because that's the only way you're going to finance Harvard, right? All of this stuff. And the thread goes on even longer than that. But like, this is the hustle. This is remarkably close also to like my experience, even though I didn't hit Harvard. I didn't hit the Ivy League. But like, yeah. I literally had to flip burgers. I, there was no online application for anything. My parents hadn't gone to college at this point. Later on, my dad went to community college. But when I was in high school, nice. I had parents with a high school education. And so, like, I was the first in my family to go to university, and I had no fucking idea how to do it, and there was no, like, guidebook. My fucking high school guidance counselor discouraged me from going to college, which is a whole fucking other thing. The ignorance about how you're supposed to proceed combined with having to literally hustle, like, literally working shit jobs that you hate to make ends meet— all the while and still doing the things uh, academically to like study, keep grades up, be competitive. Um, That is, I don't know. There's like, that's a template that there's something like remarkably American about this. Um, He's made good more than most, right? Harvard and Congressman. But um, this is an American story um, and it's, it's like at once admirable and really fucked up. Like the fact that you contrast what he had to do to get into Harvard compared to what Jared Kushner had to do, which was have his yeah. dad pay millions of dollars to Harvard and that's it. And so it's very frustrating. Shout out to the dude. But Fuck like Jared Kushner. It's really Kushner. good. Yeah.
1: It's really, like it's a really cool story. And like, you gotta hand it to him. Cause like, I can relate to a lot of the stuff in there too. Like I started a bit later on. It is, it is hard, but then what does it mean when, the, the bar gets lowered to that piece of shit cushion and he can literally just pay to do it. And so it makes it... Yeah. It cheapens the whole thing in a really horrible way not to detract from the hard work that's been done. You know, just... It,
0: it's so it, weird. It sort of the American sense. system yeah. is, like, simultaneously an oligarchy and a meritocracy. <laughs> and it's like both it's, things are true. Yeah.
1: It's a meritocracy if you can't afford it.
0: Yeah. Like, every... And, like, the majority of people the game is rigged against them but there is a game that can be played and that can be won it's just that you're basically playing the lottery you know you could do everything right and it still doesn't work out for you but if you have money the game works out for you every time and you don't even have to do much and so it's like that's america man
2: it's a thing i guess i never understand like for example this story or even for example like I guess more uh, prominently is like AOC's story, how, you know, Jared Kushner, Trump, they all keep making fun of the same kind of background story. Like, uh uh-huh, you have to work hard to get to where you are. And it's kind of like, isn't that what you've been kind of arguing you've been doing? I'm not saying that, you know, for example, Trump has worked hard to get where he is, right? Yeah. But I don't know, supposedly for a guy that's said i worked hard to get my millions my that one million dollar loan i got from my dad into like this big massive no, thing no. like you know and you're like shut the hell up how <laughs> oh, could you look you know and you can just look down at everyone too
0: oh I, I, I don't know how to describe it other than oligarchy like it's a system that's rigged for the yeah. rich like what what is that you know the system works fine for the rich even under covid the american system yeah. american government american vital services all of it works still functions well under covid if you have a shitload of money the even the medical system if you have a shitload of money but if you don't you're getting fucked right now you know and it's getting worse and so like the the system like you think oh well the the system is so broken that there's going to be a revolution or the system is so broken that change has to come but the system is not broken if you have means and that To me speaks to an oligarchy, right? Or a plutocracy at best. It's fucked up.
1: It's consistent. You people give me shit every week for being far left, bringing in far left theory, and then you come at it with tweets like this. It's like,
0: Well, what do you expect me to do? This is all I can't help it.
1: Yeah. Fucking oligarchies.
0: Yeah. Can I just be clear, I'm not a Marxist, but <laughs> Oh coward <laughs> Not anti-capital, but I am critical of capital.
2: What's your st- uh, stance on anarchism, Van, while we're at it?
0: There's not enough there for me to like think that there's it's virtuous or that like there the one thing that I can say about anarchism that was appealing was uh, Ursula Le Guin's novel The Dispossessed, where okay. it's this sci-fi version of like yeah. a, a planet. <laughs> that adopted anarchism (laughs) and it's set it was peaceful but also primitive and not a desirable place to live like she painted a picture of like an anarchist utopia and it it sucked in my mind like i wouldn't want to live there (laughs) (laughs) and that was like the best case scenario so like aside from the fact that it's always anarchists who are assassinating presidents and stuff like I'm not down with it it's interesting to me though like I find it intriguing in the Black Panther way you missed yeah,
1: the yeah. boat as a young political theorist fan not to form your own ideological called vanarchism,
0: vanarchism. <laughs> you, really,
1: you really missed the opportunity vanarchism
0: oh my god <laughs> That was the worst. What a you can't handle this. That's very promising. I'm gonna noodle on that one a bit. <laughs> you heard it here first. Vanarchism. We're gonna we're gonna have to put some intellectual Capitalize content on this. All right. Uh, second tweet from uh buddy Paul Musgrave. Funny story. So he's a professor at uh, University of Massachusetts. I think Amherst. I can't remember. But um, he's friends with, like, Dan Nexon, and he's part of this larger network that I know. Very good scholar. Also, randomly, we both lived in this tiny shit town called Evansville, Indiana, for part of our our upbringing. So he's from Evansville. I lived there for several years before uh, moving to Florida for high school. But he just says... Indiana. Yeah, yeah. It's a long story. It's (laughs) a... So... He says DC's professional liberal class oscillating between measuring the drapes in the West Wing and googling how to flee to Europe. And that's the entirety of the tweet, but it it captures what like I, I see to be very true, which is that like on the one hand, all of my like establishment Mandarin friends, they truly are expecting to come into these like deputy assistant secretary positions, senior advisor positions, assistant secretary positions in just a couple months. And it's it's causing, they're so expecting it that they're censoring themselves. They're not talking about anything or expressing any opinions unless it's attacking Trump and praising Biden. And it's very like predictable. There is a lot of self-censorship going on on the expectation that they don't want to ruin their chance for like the glorious mid-level senior official position but on the other hand everybody knows that yesterday was the best time to leave to get the fuck out and the second best time is now like they everybody knows that like this train is literally crashing as we speak and it's just a question of when do you get off and like there's a dissonance there yeah like, on the one hand you think you're still going to serve the machine and then on the end that the machine is doing god's work and then on the other hand you realize that the machine is utterly broken that your the fate of all of this is like not really up to you it's beyond you and you need to like take care of yourself and your family and stuff and the best way to do that is to stay out of the line of fire and just make life elsewhere so i don't know like this captured a lot in a very short tweet he is very good at that i must say He's a he's a super super poster, yeah, like an Uber pundit. So much so, (laughs) so much so that I think Gabby has one too.
2: Yeah, literally, I was just about to say he's been pitching these really (laughs) awesome tweets into like the Twitter abyss, like it's like the ninth inning, which is why we have like I guess like two of the episode. So yeah, definitely, sort of similar to Van's last one. This particular thread reads, riffing on an exchange I saw yesterday. But Americans fantasizing about moving to Canada, if Trump wins, are engaging in the most American ignorance ever. Ignorance of pervasive influence over other countries. Imagine a fish saying they're tired of being in water, so they're moving to another, slightly more distant part of the ocean. You might not take an interest in hegemony, but hegemony takes an interest in you. And, like, if this isn't kind of spot on, even moving all the way to buttfuck New Zealand isn't going to help you. You know, Um, I think I saw this really good reply from Robert Ralston, a postdoc at Harvard Belford. And he said, not to mention the blanket privilege of believing that you can pick up and leave at a moment's notice and settle in another country unencumbered. Like, right?
0: (laughs) No, that's right. Like, you can't just assume. I mean, try to try to come to New Zealand right now. I dare you. Good luck. You're not going to find a flight. You're going to have fucking visa issues. <laughs> like you're not going to yeah. be able to work. You're not going to be allowed to work. The, you can't. This is not the fucking neoliberal wet dream of the 1990s anymore.
1: Oh, it's pretty close. Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry. Don't
0: worry. I'm sure Milton Friedman's gonna just waiting to be like, yeah. call it a comeback. I've been here for years. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> but like, for now you're fucked. Everybody's fucked. Like you can't yeah. go any like you can't move, you know. And it's it's very like hubristic to think that you can just pack up your bags and another country will take you unless you're a political refugee. And there is an alternative future where that's the case for Americans, but we're not there yet, you know. <laughs> so like in the meantime, and frankly, like if America turns into like the fascist nightmare that I worry about, you know, and if you're like a foreign policy elite you know, move. You're not. You're not safe in Canada. You know, the yeah. long the long <laughs> yeah. arm of neo fascism will find you. you know?
2: say,
0: it's like they're gonna stop at the border. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah.
2: Something I do find curious sometimes speaking to, to Americans, and I know this is like a generalization. On one hand, they're saying are generally uh, like Americans aware about the reach America has, but then also, you know, so some people do like know that maybe, and then the other hand, it's kind of like. But if we go to, like, a different country, we're going to be not bothered, you know?
0: Yeah, I don't know. It's like, it's a privilege kind of thing. Like, you want your cake and eat it too. And so you think that you should be free to go anywhere you want, um, but you also are not burdened with America's perception and image and that kind of thing. And then, ironically, you're never more American than when you're overseas. Like, you never feel more american than when you're around a bunch of non-americans
1: you guys can't help telling us all the time
0: <laughs> you don't you don't <laughs> notice it in the u.s like the yeah. it's not even clear what what it is to be american when you're in the u.s but then you go overseas and you see how other other societies are and it's hard to, it's hard to describe it well or or thoroughly but yeah it I, like, I feel it, too.
2: Excellent. So um, my second tweet for the week is from James Palmer, a deputy editor over at Foreign Policy. He's bouncing off uh, a tweet from uh, Katie Lilly that also bounces off this whole discussion on whether Australia should step in against China if Beijing were to annex another country. This is including Taiwan. So that discussion essentially talks about how, you know, any decisions may be dependent on the framing of the idea either that this fight is on about warring against communist aggression, against a democratic state, or if this is a continuation of a long running civil war. So uh, Katie Lilly definitely disagrees that this is not a continuation of civil war. She makes a good point that the initial war was over control of China and that the KMT lost 71 years ago. So uh, any attempts from China to control Taiwan is a newer and different fight and people in Taiwan want to remain free. And to this one, Palmer uh, does agree as well. He says, It's been seven decades. An invasion of Taiwan now is no more magically excused by being a continuation of civil war than a British invasion of Ireland would be. As in so much else, history might be an explanation, but it is not an excuse.
0: Yeah. So there, I feel like there's been some confusion on this or like conflation. Um, and yeah. James, James Palmer, I think, gets this very right. Um, he, basically... we've talked, I think we talked about this in the last episode, too. There is no question, it's not disputable that China, the Chinese government, the CCP, views Taiwan as an unfinished civil war. And that's the frame that we have to recognize that China is operating from. And that's how, that's the basis on which it's like making decisions. That's the context. But we also have to recognize that For us to accept, for anybody to accept that it is a civil war, is to give China a fucking green light basically to take over Taiwan because it's not, it's a domestic thing at that point, which means that you cannot accept, you have to resist uh, the narrative that China's dispute with Taiwan is an unfinished civil war. Something that happened like that is to get to accept that narrative is to give up Taiwan. It's like to. Rhetorically disappear their fucking sovereignty The the nuance here that like people have to get right is that China perceives this as a civil war We have to understand that because it affects their decision-making and it affects how we prevent them from taking over At the same time we have to resist the idea that this is a civil war because accepting that immediately forsakes taiwan We have no leg to stand on to protect taiwan if taiwan is a province of china so we can't, we have to realize both of those things. And I feel like Hawks and doves mm. start to conflate these things, which is why James Palmer's tweet is yeah. useful.
1: Last night I was sort of bouncing ideas off Gabby for the episode. <laughs> and I, I sort of, I was told that if I'm going to bring this up, I have to preface it with this is a devil's advocate position, <laughs> but I'm curious to find out from the American perspective, At what point does a rebel state or a rebellion or the remainders of a civil war, at what point do they gain sovereignty? Like, at what point did Taiwan gain sovereignty over the PL, over China? Taiwan gained... Yeah.
0: At what point? There there are books about how, about recognition. It's, there isn't like a systematic answer to that. It's about when states... Who are like the preeminent entities in world politics make these decisions right okay. um, but with Ta- that's the general issue for taiwan in particular taiwan was the original legitimate internationally recognized government taiwan represented china in the u.n security council when the u.n was first formed the ccp's china prc was not the legitimate China that only flipped when Nixon opened China in 1972. So yeah, okay. it's, so like Taiwan was the OG fucking legitimate China. And it's just that we made strategic decisions starting in the nineties that like gradually fucked over Taiwan more and more. Um, and so like opening up recognition of the PRC and giving them the privileges that came with that came at Taiwan's expense um but taiwan mm. was the originator
1: yeah definitely
0: taiwan would be happy to declare independence from mm. from the notion of a unified china the problem is that that would trigger a war or invasion from the prc oh. so like taiwan Shit. has a reasonable position here it's it's the fact mm. that china yeah. is china's position is a is a political takeover of taiwan like China doesn't want China doesn't even want a federated system where Taiwan does its own autonomous yeah. thing. Like that's basically what has existed, you know, and that's not acceptable to them.
1: Uh, I see. It's difficult. And now listeners can probably understand why I had to preface that with the devil's advocate position. Yeah. No. All
0: good. It's not. <laughs> no, it's it's, it's no not way. a. Freaking, it's not a simple <laughs> issue, and it's very high stakes. Yeah. Like yeah.
1: I'm in no way um, pro CCP. <laughs> Let's jump into intro analysis, where we dive into a
2: different piece every week and tell you all about it. The article of the week comes from The Atlantic, written up by Tom McTong and Peter Nicholas. In the piece titled The World Order That Donald Trump Revealed, McTong and Nicholas argue that when it comes to foreign policy, the president's most important characteristic isn't immorality or a lack of curiosity. Rather, it is naivety. So critics of Trump would argue that the president has made America weaker than it's ever been, while this assumption would be seen as unfair by Trump supporters, for one reason or another. To this, the writers argue both ideas miss the real significance of Trump's presidency. American foreign policy was failing and has been for ages. Trump pointed at the reality, demanded to know why this trend was being allowed to continue, And whether you like or hate the guy, this challenge of his contains a grain of truth. So the McTogg and Nicholas argument can be summed from this particular paragraph. So the French philosopher Montesquieu noted of the Roman Empire's decline. If the chance of one battle has brought a state to ruin, some general cause made it necessary for that state to perish from a single battle. In other words, if it only took the election of Trump for America's global leadership to collapse or one bad Democratic candidate to let in a man committed to tearing down America's post-war foreign policy, there must be deeper reasons the system was so fragile to begin with. Now, Trump may not know any of this, right? Nothing he says is new or uncontested. However, the Trump critique on American policy failing and how America has been weakened by its relative economic decline is actually powerful in that it challenges assumptions both Republican and Democrat elites have considered settled.
1: Just before you jump in then, I don't know if I'm being a bit cruel to the author of the piece, but it seems they're giving far too much credit to Trump than he is than he deserves or will ever deserve. No,
0: I don't I don't disagree with that. Um, the piece also relies a lot on like quotes from Nadia Shadlow, who is the typical <laughs> neo adjacent or maybe a straight out neocon who is part of the D.C. establishment, a respectable, extremely smart person, but who went to work for Trump and who was responsible for a lot of the language in the Trump administration's strategies, which, as you know, are fucking legitimizing the evil, right? This is like, it's at best, it's like lipstick on a pig. So it's like, you're putting your talents to use (laughs) for the bad purposes. The idea of like, that's kind of like where this piece fits in a sense. The, it's true. The thing that's true is like the Montesquieu quote, right? Like there is something wrong deeper in uh, American foreign policy and how the structure of America's relationship with the world. If, all it takes is the election of one person to bring it all down, and that's the point that Dan Nexon is always making about, or in like the Exit from Hegemony book, Trump is an accelerant of these forces that were already in play that work against America's favor, that work against the liberal international order. There are other factors; Russia, China are actively working to you know subvert or bring down or work around. Uh, the, the America centric world. But um, basically American foreign policy has been, it's f- failing. I the thing is like, what is that? That means different things to different people. And like when, these, exactly. when these authors say American foreign policy was failing, they're, yep. they're channeling what Trump says and the Nadia Shadlow view, which is like, Oh, we weren't tough enough on China. It was failing because we weren't fucking taking it to China. And we weren't racist enough against Arabs or whatever. That is a way in which it was failing. The The real way in which it was failing that I think normal people understand is that foreign policy, it's, it's succeeded in preventing great power wars, right? That's not nothing. It succeeded prior to Trump in preventing arms races. That's not nothing. But that's very little. That's like keeping the oxygen in the air, you know? The... The foreign policy apparatus has served overwhelmingly to benefit corporations, to benefit people of means, to benefit the global jet setters, right? The transnationals, the cosmopolitans. It's like the US yeah. foreign policy it's again the oligarchy point. US foreign policy works wondrously if you have if you're a person of means. But if you're a factory worker, mm. you are fucked by this foreign policy. The free trade agreements don't look out for you. If you're an environmentalist, free trade agreements don't look out for you. And like the bases in foreign countries, which like I of all people understand the importance of forward presence, right? Maintaining balances of power. But that gives the average person like nothing. You know, and so the, there's a question of like how ambitious do you want to be with your foreign policy? Who is you who is your foreign policy primarily serving? And stability works out overwhelmingly in favor of elites and people with money, and that's just how it is. The question yeah. is, could it be different? And I think like a lot of the progressive foreign policy movement the past few years has been vocal precisely because there's a bet or a wager that it could be different, you know. But I think there's this like Hans Morgenthau, realist view that like, look, you got stability. What more do you want, you fucks? And like that, (laughs) like that's the nature (laughs) of world politics. No one's murdering you. So you should be fucking grateful. So I don't know. (laughs) They also focus on the things that the Trump administration has done that are in their minds desirable or acceptable. And they build (laughs) narratives around that. But those tiny little specks of desirable things, which is it's debatable in itself, whether it's desirable, but like the like, quote unquote, getting tough on China. Right. Um, or burden sharing greater burden sharing with allies. Those things, like you can argue that they're desirable and that would be legitimate, but they are basically praising Trump for that or like legitimizing Trump on those on the basis of those so-called good things. But those good mm. things only exist in the context of, fucking charlottesville and white supremacy yeah, exactly. and yeah. corruption and kleptocracy and kids in cages and green lighting the takeover mm-hmm. of fucking hong kong and green lighting the fucking internment camps in xinjiang all the bad stuff the assassination of world leaders the the yep. fucking new nuclear arms race that we're heading into all of this bad shit which way 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 outweighs these tiny specks of of good things if you want to think of them as good and they're using the tiny specks of good things as if like they don't only come with this larger package of evil. And it, it's like it's this, it's this rhetorical move that forgives and forgets all the evil stuff as if yeah. the specks of goodness make up for it. And it's all that's like very fucked yeah. up thing to do. And like neocons do this a lot. Liberals shouldn't be doing this, but they are. And everyone else should know better.
1: It was it was a bit of an aha moment in the uh, article when they it was sort of like aha Trump's known this all along, you know this is his master plan. So no, he did half of this shit because he's incompetent and he's diagnosed it because he's so virulent.
0: They quoted Nadia Shadlow as saying, "Trump is a <laughs> Paul Kennedy rise and fall of okay. fucking great powers." Yeah, he, wow. and she's like, I doubt he read it, but he's one of those types. Yeah, and it's like, I doubt he Well, read what it. the fuck? Then why yeah. like? that's a get. it's just legitimizing trump like oh he's part of an intellectual milieu it's like no he's not yeah. he's just fuck yeah fuck it whatever <laughs> <laughs> all right time for ask me anything where people ask me anything
3: right so we got four questions for ama this week question one is from tricky dick what is the best way to combat echo-chamber realism at universities as in where many separate analysts and students with different positions converge on hawkish realism and then attempt to outdo others
0: with the same sphere? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, to the extent, I have to admit, like I don't fully understand all this and these words are foreign yeah. to me, but like my experience with university settings is that they're overwhelmingly left-wing. Hawkish foreign policy views are generally ostracized. That That's my experience anyway. Like if you tried to advocate uh, some kind of militarist foreign policy position, it would come under like withering critique. Um, so, like, I'm not. Other experiences may exist, yeah. and like, I'm not sure that I'm even responding to the question accurately. But like, that's
1: yeah. I, th- I think it was more specifically mm-hmm. strategic studies and security studies. Mm. Um, there is a more conservative because, audience than
0: strategic studies. Yeah,
1: because Paul's is definitely left wing orientated. I don't think anyone would argue that it's not. Yeah, but strategic studies and and strat is definitely tilted towards offensive realism from what i've seen anyway
0: yeah i've I've kind of noticed that distinctly too at vic like at victoria university like the strategic studies attracts the more hawkish types i guess there's nothing about the content of the curriculum that should make it that way necessarily um but Mm -hmm. there is a lean like that strat is was there a phrase strat bro realism <laughs> yeah
1: it's a um it's a phrase that's thrown around i guess because i'm sort of on the left periphery left opposition
0: it's like bro science for of, strategic studies yeah yeah it's like you know the
1: chad the chad bros of strategic studies you know like oh like the the poor sort of chad bros
3: Sweet ass. So for question two, it's from Katie Brennan. How many of your Washington DC friends think about foreign policy like you? What do you think about your progressive politics?
0: Very few people who are establishment mandarins think like me. There are people in the (laughs) bureaucracy who listen to this podcast and who do send me notes and stuff and who do think like me, or they take cues from the show maybe, I don't know. But like, there are people in the bureaucracy who are not in like high level positions who have this, you know, kind of implicitly progressive internationalist view or a progressive technocrat view, I guess. But um, in terms of like the think tank set in the think tank world, no, there's like two people who fucking think like me. It's, it's like pretty bleak. Um, and my the, one of the social problems I have is that or dilemmas is that I built up my Rolodex of friends in the Obama, like, unipolar moment days, like, pre-Hillary Clinton-Trump presidency. And so it's, like, all these people that I know, some of whom I've co-authored stuff with, that I stay in touch with, and, like, they are going to, a lot of them are going to staff Biden's administration, and they do not have a progressive, you know, bone in their body when it comes to foreign policy, they'll sign on to like Medicare for all or like they're, they're open to like a green new deal. A lot of them. So on like domestic shit. They will take a progressive stance, but then on foreign policy, it's like the same old shit. It's like, Oh, well we need to stay in Afghanistan for maybe three, five, three to five more years, which we've been saying since fucking 2001. Like it's always three years away that we're going to fucking get out, you know? Um, It's like, well, what can you do against North Korea except add more fucking sanctions, right? There's like all this like standard establishment hawkish leaning stuff, um, not really thinking critically, not having a kind of independent mind, and not being open to like the progressive movements, I don't know, like vocality, the greater intensity of like progressive thinking about foreign policy, their theory of security. Very little openness to that like onesie twosies, right? Um, so like when I vocalize stuff on Twitter especially or in op-eds that is like very clearly leftist or progressive, they meet it with silence. Like they don't they don't like shame me or argue with me about it. They just try to like ice me out basically. Yeah. And, like, one of the things that's happened more and more is that I, there are conversations that are probably happening within, like, establishment echo chambers that I'm not a part of. And, like, I'm a part of a bunch of different conversations, but, like, I, I know that there are things happening even in, like, being in D.C. doesn't matter anymore because we're all working from home. But, like, there are conversations of, like, like-minded groupthink kind of thing where it's, like, Obama 2.0 thinking and you know they know that like if they invite me it's the skunk to the garden party i'm gonna fucking shit all over their north korea policy or their like reflexively hawkish view on china or whatever it is you know um and so like i because i'm still friends with them that's like kind of awkward you know
3: sweet so for question three it's from a friend of the pod sean wolfgang in a recent in a recent episode, you highlighted Occupied as a series you think is a good illustration of strategy choices and consequences in fiction. Do you have any other fiction re- recommendations along similar lines in any format?
0: So like all the Isaac Asimov books are actually really good for this. So the the Foundation series? Yeah, they are you know, galactic balance of power politics and imperial expansion, like the whole Daniel Dudney book we're talking about. There was a whole, there was a series of sci-fi books, um, not just Isaac Asimov, but he's like the classic, that really, I mean, they talk about balance of power theory before balance of power theory was a thing because they were written in like the 50s and 60s and stuff. And it's, those things were illuminating because it's in book form, you know, unless you're a sci-fi nerd, I feel like books are just not accessible to people anymore because they only consume fucking memes and YouTube clips. I hope I'll that doesn't hit. Three. I hope that doesn't hit too close to home, guys. But, uh... <laughs> what are you trying to say? What are well, you trying to fucking say? I mean... <laughs> Uh, for movies, I can't I'm trying to think of like a, the movie space. I haven't seen a lot of like geopolitics, interesting stuff happening. The game space, though, the game diplomacy, which I still have not played, um, is supposed to be um, amazingly good in the strategy choice kind of way. And um, David Cleon wrote a piece for foreign policy talking about his own life experience with the diplomacy game. But it's like a game that Kissinger used to play. Uh, people nerd out about yes. it all the time.
3: Sweet. So question four is from an anonymous listener. What are your thoughts about the Hoover Institution belonging to Stanford? I'm a PhD student at Stanford, and one of my professors wrote, wrote an open letter arguing they should be kicked off campus.
0: Oh, so I, I have mixed feelings about this. So Hoover Institution is a a liberal conservative, like neoliberal conservative think tank, and they are not... There, there are some people affiliated with Hoover who have serious academic credentials, but everything, yeah. you know, I think Francis Fukuyama has uh, an affiliation there still, but they have their main, it's not their main credential. Like their main credential is a different part of Stanford or it's at a place like Harvard, like not even at Stanford university. Right. And so it's basically this very, very well-funded conservative think tank and Corey Shockey was there once and she's, she's conservative, but she's like good, reasonable, like genuinely never Trump kind of thing. But Hoover also, you know, I think it gets like Peter Thiel money. And even if it's not, it's like that kind of, I don't even know how to describe it except conservative liberal. Um, yeah. And they take pretty like noxious views on foreign policy and on, on domestic Very. politics in particular And they're not academic for the most part, and so the fact that they sit on the Stanford campus is a function of money. It's a function of politics. It's not a function of like their academic contributions or whatever. And the Stanford there's a school called the Freeman Spogli Institute where small like side story. I almost worked there. Like I almost got a a fellowship there. Um, And they are they are the think tank that's responsible for. Um, teaching international policy at Stanford. And Ooh. they are affiliated with the political science department. They have a lot of like dual appointment faculty. So it's like you sit in Stanford university political science and you're a fellow or senior fellow or whatever at the Freeman Spogli Institute and the Freeman, okay. Freeman Spogli Institute houses it, Mike McFall's in charge of it. The guy who was Obama's Russia ambassador, who's ah. like the political commentator and his deputy who runs FSI Is Colin Call, who was Biden's deputy national security advisor whenever, no, who was Biden's national security advisor when Biden was vice president. And Colin was my boss at the Pentagon for like a month when I was working Middle East stuff before I moved to Asia. So like it's got McFall and Colin Call, are representative of like FSI. These guys have extremely high profiles. They're extremely high level savvy policy practitioners who also have legit PhDs and legit academic journal publications and academic books. And so like they are checking all the boxes, right? And that's FSI. That's the that's like a think tank that's super legit. And within FSI sits CSAC Center for International Security and Arms Control, which is like extremely respected um, in academia. It's like the the premier place to do security studies and nuke stuff. And um, there's a couple other centers and institutes that sit within. FSI Freeman Spogli Institute all Of that has nothing to do with The Hoover Institution the Hoover Institution Has literally its own building On campus separate From all of that it has its own like Archival library with Uh. Herbert Hoover archival documents and Shit there are some people who have Appointments at FSI and Appointments at Hoover and it's like Those tend to be the like legit people And so it's like if you have a Hoover the lesson here is like if you have a Hoover Institution affiliation that doesn't mean you're a scumbag, but there are lots of Hoover Institution people who are basically scumbags in, not in a well, human yeah. sense, but in like a political foreign policy sense.
1: I'd say the human sense for
0: some of them. Well, I'm sure you would. Yeah. Um, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> so this is very controversial because like at Stanford there was, I, I, I saw this letter actually. Um, I shared it on Twitter that at Stanford People who are legit academics, or people who are associated with the other think tank, have a huge problem with Hoover being part of Stanford, and the the leadership at Stanford, because it's a money thing and a political thing, have not distanced themselves at all from this, and like they are not doing anything. Like it doesn't look like Hoover is going to be removed from Stanford University at any point, even mm. though a lot of people think it should. Um, so I don't know. I don't. I'm not invested in this at all. I happen to like love stanford but in certain respects i also hate it part of me wishes i did get this stanford job and like i worked there because it's fucking palo alto and they have like huge (laughs) big name scholars are there you know it's a fucking amazing place to be but uh you know and
1: you're here and you're here with us and i'm
0: here in my fucking bedroom in new zealand (laughs) uh (laughs) no and but like it would be a terrible place to be right now because of fucking covid and lockdown and like can't go anywhere right and the cost of living is impossibly high uh you have to deal with things like the hoover institution where it's like uh i don't know yeah it's it's interesting to like i don't know flag this talk about it i'm not sure i have a particular opinion on it All right, gang, that's going to do it. Uh, Buymeacoffee.com slash undiplomatic to send us quote-unquote coffees. And, uh, you know, you want to rate us on iTunes or wherever you're listening? Much appreciated. Catch you next time. Shut the fuck up, Max. Peace.